0: The following is an audio sermon from Sacred City Church in Davenport, Iowa. For more free audio content, search Sacred City Church in your iTunes store. Now to him who is able to far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, so we are in the book of Ephesians. Um, we try not to get too creative around here. We preach right through the books of the Bible. So we are in Ephesians. We are getting halfway through this book. We've come to a very interesting point. Obviously, uh, Also, let me just throw this out there. If you have UVersion, if you have the app on your phone, on your Android, on your iPad, we do. Uh, you can log into UVersion and, and sacred, search Sacred City Church, and all of our liturgy and stuff are right there. There's places to take notes. So, first three chapters of Ephesians... Paul has been trying to beat into our heads the beauty of the gospel, all right? Martin Luther is the one that that can that phrase. He said, preach the gospel always and beat it into their head incessantly, okay? Because that's what we need to know. So the first three chapters, Paul just lays out brilliantly the beauty of the gospel. He wants us to be thrilled by it. He wants us to be overwhelmed by it. He wants us to be enraptured by it. He takes us up to the highest heavens, to the cosmos. And he says, I want, to, I want you to see that God just didn't save your soul. God is renewing all of creation. Everything's going to be united in Christ. He just, I mean, he goes above and beyond, right? And basically the first three chapters, I told you this a couple weeks ago, the first three chapters are called indicatives. Everybody say Indicatives. This is important. Now, listen to me. Some of you, all, I hear it often. Just when I, when I read my Bible, I don't get what you get out of it. I don't really understand. Number one, it's because you don't study like I do. Let's just say that, okay? If you spent some time and you asked the Holy Spirit to illuminate, God will speak. He promises in his word. He will move on your heart. He will teach you things. I mean, he'll blow your mind. I've been doing it for about 12 years now, and he, he never ceases to amaze me. It's not because I'm smart, okay? I know that all the excuses. Well, I don't read. Guys, I never read a book until my sophomore year of college. Okay? And then when I started, I started with the Left Behind series. All right, And that's not much better. Okay? I'm just going to be honest. It's not much better. All right? It's similar to Christian Dr. Seuss or something. But <clears throat> it just takes practice. You just work, work, work. You, you realize none of us are born readers, right? It's something that we have to practice, we have to do. So first three chapters are indicatives. What are indicatives? Indicatives are something that Christ has done, something that, see, look at this. You guys back here, and I'll just walk out here with you. Indicatives are something you can't get away. Indicatives are things that God has done. They require no action on your, behalf, on, your, on your behalf, on your part. Things that God has done. All right. This is the gospel. It moves from indicatives to imperatives. Most of our preaching in, the, in evangelistic churches today, forget this, and they go straight to imperatives. You should love your wife. You should be a good citizen. You should not cuss. You should not drink. You should not do all these things. It goes right to imperatives, forgets indicatives. The gospel does not do that. The gospel writers do not do that. The, the, the apostle Paul does not do that. He spends three whole chapters. Remember, he only gave us one thing to do in three chapters. And that one thing was, remember the gospel. Right? So, he gives us nothing to do. But now, he's going to show us how the gospel when you believe the imperatives, when you believe what God has done, it's going to move into indicative or imperatives, and this is what you have to do. all right? Or this is how you respond because of the Gospels moved in your heart. The indicatives, this is how you respond in the imperatives. Now listen, he's going to go pretty fast. In the next three chapters, he's going to do this. He's going to tell us, how does the Gospel affect your personality? How does the Gospel affect your gifts and your talents? How does the Gospel affect our marriages? How does the gospel affect our singleness? How does the gospel affect our parenting? How does the gospel affect our neighboring? How does the gospel affect our ministry? How does the gospel affect our morality? He's going to go into all those things. So, I don't know how long we've been pre- preaching this. Since July, I guess, we've been in the book of Ephesians and went through three, and all we've been hit on is gospel um, indicatives. But now we're going to see, okay, if you believe it, this is how you behave. This is what, how you respond. This is what goes on in your life. So for those of you who like to do things, for those of you who are like, man, we talk about the same thing every week, all right? You're about to get plenty of stuff in your face to convict you of, oh, man, I am not very good, and I really suck at that, okay? So obviously, I don't believe the gospel, all right? You're going to get plenty of that in the next few weeks. <clears throat> so Paul is going to show us literally, and this is our ministry is based on this fact, that the gospel changes everything. Our human sense, our human nature says I either push away from God and do my own thing into license or I'm going to be a really, really, really good person and I'm going to try to obey all the rules and I'm going to try to get God to like me through legalism. That's the nature of our heart. Rebel in license or obey in legalism. And the gospel says, eh, you don't get to do that. The gospel is the true path. It's the true path. It's, the tr- it's, a, it's a different way. It's not conservatism. It's not liberalism. It's a middle path. All right? So, but before we take a step uh, into these next few chapters, I think it's important for us to take a look at the big picture, right? The big picture. What is the point of everything? That's the big, big picture, right? What is the point of everything? What is the point? Um, There's a lot of people today... um, Humanism, you know, humanistic outlooks, atheistic outlooks that, view, that 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 would say there is no point. We are a result of evolutionary um, theory. We're re- an evolutionary process. We're just here because some slime decided one day that it was going to become a little better than slime. And then that slime became something better and better and better and better and better. And we continually evolve. And it's just the survival of the fittest. And there actually is no purpose, or meaning in life. You are just here. You just exist. You're just taking up, and someday we're all going to burn and go, and the earth will dissolve, and maybe it'll happen all again. We don't know. It's an absolute accident. That's a very fatalistic uh, view, right? There's not very much hope in that. still surprises me that some people like to espouse that view, but the biblical view of history is a lot different, okay? The biblical view, in my opinion, it's the story that's too good to be true, but it's still true, all right? So, That's the, what's the point of everything? We're going to get there, but what, let's just make, let's just bring it down. What's the point of your life? What's your purpose? What's your chief end? If you're like most Quadsidians, it's, it might be this, to work hard, to have a good family, to watch my kids grow up, and repeat the cycle. Well, you don't get to repeat the cycle, but they get to repeat the cycle. I mean, if you really had to break it down, I think most Quad Cities, Quad Citians, that's where we come from. We are known for our hard work, our Midwestern values. We're known for Family First. We're known for John Deere and Alcoa and, and these companies that are, that are built on the hard work and dedication of their employees. We're known for those things, and we just put our head down. We work hard. We make a living. We support our wife or our husband, and we raise our kids, and that's what we do. And that's the end of our life. That's the goal of our life. Now, we hope maybe, you know, you'll ask a lot of people this, well, what, what happens when you die? Well, I hope, you know, I hope. He, he knows that I, just, I was a good man and I did more good than I did bad and he's going to let me in the pearly gates. I hope that's what happens. All right? <clears throat> and listen, the Bible it's, the Bible is pro-family. I'm going to say this. The Bible is pro-family, but if you read it, you'll find out that families are not the point of our lives. Families are not the end. Families are not the goal. That's just too small. That's too small. If you build your life around your family, your soul will shrink because you weren't created to center your life around your family. I'm going to have to take my sweatshirt off here because I know I don't want to get too cold in here. You guys all freak out on me. So, <clears throat> Now, this, this sounds really noble, Right? To build your life around your family, to sacrifice for your family, to um, work hard and just put your head down and just go. Just to, re- you know, I'm just trying to give my life, my kids something better than I had. Right? You hear that a lot, right? I just want to provide a better, a standard of living that's better than my kids. Have. It sounds really noble, but if you really dig down, now listen. If you really dig down to it, it's very selfish. The family is actually not the center; we are the center. We're the, our personal happiness. What we end up saying is, as long as my family loves me, I'm okay. As long as I have my family's approval, I'm okay. So we build our life, we are the center of our universe, our family worships us to some extent, and, and we, we are literally saying, this is my ultimate end, this is what I was built for, I was built to be a father, I was built to be... Ladies, you're built to be a mother. I was built to be a husband or a wife or whatever. We say these things, and they're, they're, they're kind of true. Like, God is pro-family, and God did give us the institution of marriage, and God did give us children, did, did tell us to be fruitful, multiply, and they are a good thing. But when they become an ultimate thing, they become an idol in our life, and they will never satisfy us. You talk to some older parents and ask them, if you build your life on your kids, how that will go for you. Number one, you get 18 years, then they move out. And then many times marriages fall apart, families fall apart, because everything was placed in the lap of the kid. One of the sad things that you see now is that women put so much of their identity in finding a man that they don't know who they are, they don't know they've been made in the image of God, they don't know they have inherent dignity and value and worth, so they're willing to give up something that the Bible says is precious and to be cherished, and is meant to be celebrated in the bonds of marriage, which is sex between a husband and a wife, and they, they, they seek that approval of a man, so they give themselves to this man, and then many times become pregnant, which is a blessing, right, it's a blessing, and then this child comes up, and the man, you know, he does what little boys do, We call them Ban, a man that's actually a boy, but he's kind of in the middle period, you know. This middle period that we created, it used to go from like 11 to like 15, they used to call it adolescence. Now it's going from about 11 to like 32, all right. They're sitting in their mom's basement playing Lego Star Wars, right. They're hoping to get an internet job so they can stay in their pajamas all day. We call that Ban, all right. It's a boy who... Or, you know, it's actually a woman who should be a man, but they more act like a boy. So this guy, he says, I don't want to have anything to do with a kid. That just cramps my style. I can't go out to clubs with a kid. I don't have the money to support you. My mom, you know, can you get child support from my mom? I don't really know. So what happens is, this is really sad. What happens is, many times, that that young mother... She was looking for the acceptance, the approval, the love of a man. She doesn't get it. She gets this. But then she gets the greatest gift that God could give her, and it's a brand-new baby. And many times, she, that baby becomes her whole world. Many times you hear people, they change their life because they got this baby. They grow up. They mature. But that baby becomes almost like a substitute man. And on Friday nights, they're not going out with friends, and they're not, they're not doing things like that. They're cuddling with that baby. They're almost worshiping that baby. They're spoiling that baby. They're pouring their money to that baby. And it's becoming something they worship and not just something they love. It's not, no longer just a good thing. Now it's a God thing. Now it's something that grips them. And these kids grow up without fathers without, and being literally idolized and worshipped. And some of them, you know, we're not meant to be worshipped, right? You become little spoiled, crazy kids, all right? I want to say demon kids nearly, but that's what nearly it's nearly Because worship goes wrong. God has given us something to love, but we worship it instead. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> this is, these are good gifts, okay? Sex is a good gift. Husband, wife, marriage is a good gift. Family is a good gift. Children are a good gift. These are a good gift, but when we use them wrongly or inappropriately or outside of the bonds that God's given us to use them, they become bad things. Good things can become bad things when they become ultimate things, all right? And I want you to show you, this is, um, those things, they're just too small for your life to end on. If your whole life is in your kids, what happens when they, you know what, this, this is what's going to happen. I hate to say this, and I, I, I've already lo- I've, it's already happened to me right, because I, I, guys, I love my kids, I put probably too much of myself in my kids, I've caught myself the other day having a bad day, and running, picking up Zoe, and going to cuddle on the couch with Zoe, and I literally had to check myself, and I literally said, you know what, I better be running to Christ for my comfort, and not just my little girl, because there's going to come a day, it's already come with my boy, where I go and grab him, I sit him up and cuddle him, I look at him in the face, I love you, and he says, I love you too, whap, (laughs) smacks me right in the face. Or the ultimate one that that you look at your son and you say, the the words that you never should say. No. And he says, I hate you. You're so mean to me. You don't ever let me eat candy. Right? Is that true? Heck no, it's not true. get to eat candy all the time. But you cross his will once. You cro- and this is what they are our kids are little legalists right they're little sinners and they're perfecting how to manipulate and get their way anytime they want and listen if you put your identity if you put your identity in your kids when you cross them and they say something as hurtful as "I hate you you will be crushed and devastated and many times you hear parents they don't know how to handle that and they respond "Don't you know what I've sacrificed for you don't you know what I've given up for you don't you know how I Whoa, you know you've crossed over from being a good thing to a God thing. And the same thing can happen in marriage. We start looking to our spouse to meet our needs. We start looking to our spouse to make us feel loved. That's not their job, by the way. Their job is not to make you feel loved. God is the only one that can fulfill that desire. Your wife, husband, significant other will let you down, will sin against you, will hurt you. And if you worship them, if you put them on that pedestal, or you have to have their approval to be happy and to be loved. You will be devastated when you don't get it, when you want it. <clears throat> so this is where we are, okay? I want you to see what's the purpose of things. If family not the end and marriage is not the end and sex is not the end, what's the end? What's the goal? Why were we created? I want you to look in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. And this is just, this is called a doxology. We kind of covered it a little bit last week, but I was really wanted to sit down in it tonight because um, God's been speaking to me through it. Paul says this Now to him, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. Now listen, that's just bad grammar, all right? Even in Greek, that's just bad grammar, but he's trying to get a point across. Look. That all we ask, he's he's able to do far more abundantly, far more. That's like saying he's really great, great, all right? God is great, great, all right? Abundantly abundant, all right? He's trying to make a point here. God is too much, all right? That's how much he is. He is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now, look at this. To him, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Okay, now listen. This is, what I'm, this is my whole point tonight. Now to him who is able to do abundantly above all that we could ask or think. The point of your life, the end point, the end game of your life, the end result, the chief end. Now listen, this is big. It's not about you. It's about God. God is the point. Specifically, God's glory is the point. The story of God, all of history, revolves around the glory of God, not us. I'm going to say it again. The story of God, all of history, revolves around the glory of God, not us. God did not create us because He really wanted someone to hang out with. Man, I'm bored. Let's create, let's create some peeps. You know, like give me some, give me somebody to spank, right, or something, right? No, God did not create us for that purpose. He created us, Isaiah says, for His glory. What does that mean? Well, we're going to find out. <clears throat> now, listen. This it's all it's all about. Who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. That's what history's about. That's what your life should be about. If you want your life to have meaning, you better get in that. Everything, the whole—the re- reason the world exists, the universe, it says the skies and the galaxies declare his glory. The reason they're there is to project his glory, to remind us who he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. If you want your life to have meaning, you need to get in on that Story. All right. When we lose sight of this, our lives begin to orbit around some created thing, and we lose sight of the glory of God, and we miss the point of our existence. All right. Listen, we are, John Calvin says, we are are just created to worship. All of us are created to worship, we are always worshiping something. All right, we're always worshiping something. The point of our existence, though, is to worship the right thing. Worship the only thing that can give us wholeness, the only thing that can give us peace, the only thing that can give us rest, and that's God. But we always put stuff in the, in the middle. We always get stuff in the way. A good job, right, For, we get this. This is what happens. Like a, a dude, he's making like $9 an hour, right? He's making like $17,000 a year, and it's fine, Okay? He gets married, and she's making like 12000 or 15000 He's making 17000 something like that. And they like, we can do this. They, they live together. It's fine. Then all of a sudden, right, they feel the, you know, they, they're fruitful and multiply. Their love is overflowing, right, and they have a kid. Now, all of a sudden, he gets this pressure upon him. My wife, I want my wife to be able to stay at home and love our kid and take care of our kid and, and focus on the kid. And, you know, he, he's, not the quickest, he's not the quickest guy. He's not the sharpest tool in the shed. But all of a sudden, he does the math, and he's like, oh, We're going to have $12,000 less than we had before. So he's got this pressure on him to go out and to get a job, maybe a real job, right? Maybe, you know, he's got to go out and do something different and make a little bit more money. And he does. And he goes out and he works hard and they barely make ends meet, but he's doing it. She gets to stay at home with the kids and things are good and things are, I mean, really exciting. And then all of a sudden something happens. A good thing that he's just working hard to provide for the family, all of a sudden there's a promotion. He takes the promotion, he's working hard, and he puts his head down. Instead of it for being, a se- being for a season to the glory of God and the good of his family, now all of a sudden he starts thinking, you know what, it'd be nice, that, that living room that we got, it'd be nice if we had toys in that living room. So he works a little more and he puts toys in the room, and then he starts thinking about, you know what, it'd be nice if we had a nicer car, and then, then he's got to get the car, and then it'd be nice if we had a pool in the backyard, or it'd be nice if we had a membership to this, or it'd be nice. And then all of a sudden, what was meant for the glory of God and the good of your family has become an idol That you can serve yourself and serve your needs. And how many millions of times have you heard fathers say, the reason I'm never home is because I love my family. Clear logic, right? No, it's not good logic. It's not true. It's a lie we tell ourselves. It's a lie we tell ourselves. You see how a good thing can easily become a God thing. Now listen, this is what happens because we are made to worship, and things we are made we are made to worship God to orbit around Him, but we put other things in there, and it becomes about us. We start to think our world is about me; my world revolves around me. Now, listen. This is called uh, cat and dog theology. All right, it's called cat and dog theology. Let me let me tell you a little bit about it. A cat goes, my owner feeds me, cares for me and cleans up after me, I must be God, right? A dog goes, my owner feeds me, cares for me, and cleans up after me, he must be God, all right? That's why when you walk home to your dog, your dog is jumping all over you, he's excited about you, you know, the, the master of the universe is home, right? And that's why they say the dog, you know, it's, a, it's man's best friend because the dog worships you, right? And you walk home and your cat's like, Like, doesn't even acknowledge your existence, right? Because it's, now listen, many times the evangelistic, or the uh, evangelical church, all right, we in our Christianity or what have you, we are way too feline in our theology. We see God taking care of us. We see God providing propitiation for our sins through Christ on the cross. And we see God meeting our needs. We see God giving us a church, surrounding us with godly people, giving us great things. And we say, oh, it must be about me. He saved me because I'm great. He saved me because I I got leadership potential. Maybe he wants me to be a pastor. Maybe he wants me to lead people. Maybe he wants me to sing. That's why he saved me, because I got something good in me. Two feline in our theology. And it's the exact opposite. He saved us to show us his goodness while we were dead in our trespasses. He saves us. He takes care of us. He meets our needs. He loves us. And he's God, not us. We're way too feline in our theology. You could come to Sacred City, be engaged in a missional community, but have your life still revolve around you. I'll come when it's convenient for me. I'll share when it's convenient for me. I'll share this much, but not—I'm not, not going to share completely because then you know that might be uncomfortable. I'll serve a little bit, but you know I'm busy and I got to work and I got all this stuff going on. I mean, I'll do it. You can come and participate, and your life still revolve around you and not God. It's so easy to slip into this feline theology if it's all about me, and when you're the point. The world's not meant to revolve around you. Jesus says he holds the universe together by the word of his command. You try that. You can't do it. Everything falls apart when you're the center of your universe. Now, I think we can lose sight of this pretty often. I know I do. You can read, you can pray, you can serve, you can go down to the soup kitchen, you can do all these things, but you can still be at the center of your world. I want you, I want to, I'm going to go back through Ephesians because I, we, we learned some awesome things that God has done for us, right? Through Ephesians, right? He, he adopted us, he chose us, he sanctified us, he loved us, he poured his love into us. He's done a lot of things, but I want you, I think we could have missed something. We could have missed something, so I want you to go back to chapter 1. Go back to Ephesians 1. I want you to look at verse 3. When you're there, say there. Okay, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. Thank God he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Look, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Thank God, according to the purpose of his will, to the... uh, uh, What, what? To the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. Listen to that. He adopted us, he blessed us, he chose us because you're freaking awesome. No. To the praise of his glorious grace. Look at this. That, those good things, look at me right here. Those good things that God's done to you are not meant to terminate on yourself. They're meant to ricochet back up to God and give him glory. We're not meant to be feline in our theology and receive that and say, I am so great, God chose me, I'm one of the elect, and I've been predestined, and I've been blah, 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 blah. No, we're supposed to, it's supposed to ricochet up and give glory to God and say, I can't believe I was worthless, I was dead, I was a sinner. Praise be His grace. Praise be His grace. It's about the glory of grace. It's not about us being saved. We're not the point. His glory is the point. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> In him, Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He did it, why? Because you're good. Because he needed somebody to cuddle with. No, he did it for the praise of His glory. He did it because He wanted you to preach the gospel. He did it because... No, He did it for the praise of His glory. Look at verse 13. In Him, in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Another great thing, God gave us the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance the guarantee of heaven coming our way and new creation until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. His glory is the point of all creation. His glory is the end game. His glory is the point of your existence. His glory is why you're here. His glory is your purpose. Now, Now listen. The glory of God is the point of it all. Over 300 years ago, the Westminster Confession of Faith came out. And we've been, you know, the Evangelical Church, the Orthodox Church has been quoting this for over 300 years. And the Westminster Catechism starts out with this. What is the chief end of man? All right? The chief end of man. That's what, they to, that's what is your purpose? What is the goal? What is the end game? What is the point of it all? Does anybody know it? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. To glorify God and to enjoy Him. Listen to that. I hope hope that sounds a little off to you because more than likely I'm preaching the glory of God. The glory's the game. And you're kind of thinking, that's a little egotistical. That sounds really boring on my part. Man, it sucks to be me. Everything's about Him and nothing about me. And I don't get anything out of this. And this is just slaving along. God wants His little minions to slave along and obey Him. Westminster, they, they, they got something here chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever you ask the majority of people today what's the point of Christianity to get to heaven terrible terrible theology horrible shoot yourself in the head jump off a bridge with that theology what's the point of, what's the point of creation what's the point of this That's terrible. I have no hope. I have no joy on this earthly life. Just one day I'm going to get to heaven. What? Let's go back 300 years to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says this. Everything we do, including how we eat and drink, should be done to the glory of God. And yes, they're specifically talking about alcohol in that scripture. Everything should be done to the glory of God. Drink, eat to the glory of God. Isaiah, again, says that man was made, women, man, made for the image bearing and and formed for his glory. That's Isaiah 43, 7. In John 17, 24, Jesus specifically prays for his people. And this is what he says this. Father, let them see the glory that I had before the foundation of the world. Let them see that glory. Why? The glory of God is the point. Now, let's just do this. What is God's glory? Um, In our day and age, no one um, teaches as much and as well on the, on the subject of God's glory is John Piper. So if you want to study the glory of God, you need to read some of John Piper's works. Um, he is basically disseminating the work of Jonathan Edwards, um, the greatest Protestant theologian of all times, one of the greatest pastors, preachers, um, shaped our American culture in ways you would not believe. You want to cook your noodle? Look up his heritage. Look up his lineage it's blown away. I was at a conference and they read it. And I was blown away by the grace given to his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren and his lineage down the line. It's nuts the influence that he's had on the culture of the United States of America. And he's disseminating his work, John Piper talking about the glory of God. And this is the simplest way, the simplest definition that I call him J. Pip, right? John Piper, J. Pip. This is what he says. God's, this is what God's glory is. God's holy perfection going public. And Isaiah, Isaiah says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, and the whole, world, whole earth is filled with His glory. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He sees Him high and lifted up. The whole, and the whole earth is filled with His glory. The glory of the Lord is God's holiness going public. Now, I put this long, extensive quote on... You version, but I'll read it to you right now. This is, so that's J. That's Pipp's like everyday version, right? Like that's like for all of us. And this is his real version of definition of glory. The glory of God is a way of saying, listen, that there is an objective, absolute reality to which all human admiration, wonder, awe, veneration, praise, honor, acclaim, and worship is pointing. We are made to find our deepest pleasure Somebody say pleasure. We are made to find our deepest pleasure in admiring what is infinitely admirable. That is the glory of God. The glory of God is not the psychological projection of human longing onto reality. On the contrary, inconsolable human longing is the evidence that we were made for God's glory. Look at this. The reason you want to laugh and love and be joyous and worship football. Last night I was jumping up and down as Four out of the top six or seven teams in the BCS got beat, so my Alabama Crimson tie moved up to second place and looked like they're going to be in the national championship game. I was worshiping last night. I was excited about football. I love college football, All right. Now listen, the reason I get excited, football is a terrible God, right? Two weeks ago, it crushed me when Alabama lost in overtime, right, to, to LSU. We missed four field goals. Not that I'm bitter about it at all, but... That, I, it's despairing, right? I put my hope in something, and it, it, it falls through. You know what that's right, like, right? Get really excited about a job opportunity, put your hope in it, falls through. Get really excited about a relationship, falls through. Get really excited about this new money you're going to get, falls through. Get really excited about things, it falls through. Now listen, that desire for fulfillment, that desire for joy, that desire for completion, is, even when it's unfulfilled, Even when you don't get it, it's pointing to the fact that you have a desire to be fulfilled and that only God can fulfill that desire. The fact that you are not fulfilled points to the fact that you should be fulfilled or can be fulfilled only in Him. Listen, C.S. Lewis says it so much better than I could ever say it, obviously. This is what he says. If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. The reason sex never satisfies is because sex is not an end. God is the end that our joy will terminate on, that our fulfillment will terminate on. That's why when you have sex once, you want to have sex again, and you're never fulfilled why your marriages can be great, but it's not Jesus, it's not God, it's not ultimately fulfilling, your kids are great, but they're not ultimately fulfilling, only God, if we have a desire that nothing on this earth can satisfy, ladies, that new pair of jeans, that new purse, it's cute for like what, a week, a day, a couple weeks, you have a desire for beauty that can only be satisfied in God. You have a desire for acceptance, for love, for approval that can only be found in God. And I'm afraid that we've lost this. Christianity's lost the point. We've lost that we can be fulfilled in Christ, we can be fulfilled in God, that this is our chief, this is what we bring to the table, that we can live for the glory of God and enjoy Him forever. God is not a means to an end. God is the end himself. We've lost this. You exist to worship, praise, and make, make much of God. This is why you exist. Now let, listen, let me tell you why this does not sound like good news yet, right? I, oh, great, I exist to worship God. That sounds like a great plan here. I'm really going to be excited. How can I be Let me show you why this is the best news in the universe. Okay, If God is after the praise of His glorious grace, if God is after the praise of His glorious grace, that's where His glory shines, right? The praise of His glorious grace, then He is not after your begrudging submission to His will. He's after your joy. If God... Oh, man. Oh, man. Give me a way to say that. If God is after the, glo- the praise of his glorious grace, then he doesn't want you to suck it up and just obey. He doesn't want you just to sacrifice because it's the right thing to do. He doesn't want you just to, to train yourself and discipline your desires because you'll be you know, a nice little Christian robot. He's doing, he's after your joy. It's about your joy, a word we don't hear very often. Listen, your joy and God's glory are inextricably connected. They're the same thing. God's glory, your joy, same thing. You can't find your joy apart from his glory. C.S. Lewis says, God cannot make you happy without giving giving you himself. If we ask for happiness apart from God, he looks at us like we're crazy. He can't give it to us. He can only fulfill us. He can only give us joy through giving us himself. Your joy, God's glory, inextricably connected. Can't separate the two. Romans 5.2 says that we should rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That joy should come when we think about the glory of God. Joy should come when we worship the glory of God. The reason all of the commands exist in the Bible is because that defines human flourishing. That is our joy. The reason God says do not get drunk with wine but instead be drunk with the Spirit is because that defines our joy. He's saying you will be more joyous if you don't get drunk with wine but you're drunk in the Spirit. That's human flourishing. That's for your good. That's for your joy. The reason he says don't have premarital sex isn't to take all the fun out of things. He says because this is for your joy. I'm giving you a good gift. This is human flourishing. This is what it looks like to live a joyous life. That's why he gives us the boundaries, the rules, if you will. God defines that. He's saying this is what it looks like for humans to rock. This is what it looks like to really be a human. How arrogant are you that you want to say, no. It's like, it's like you're going in, I got to use this terrible example, sorry. It's like you going in, to Twilight. All right, I'm gonna take you into Twilight. Okay, I'm gonna take Adam into Twilight. We're gonna go into Twilight. I'm gonna let him see two seconds of it, and then I'm gonna walk out and say, "Okay, well, th- tell me what the movie's about." Well, it was about vampires. Were there werewolves in it? No. It was a movie about vampires. Was there a pregnant vampire in it? Pfft, no. Probably not. It's just a movie about vampires. He's got no idea. He's got no idea what's going on in the movie. Why? Because he saw it for two seconds. You are a blip on the radar radar screen of eternity. You are here for a second. How arrogant of you to think that you know what's going on in the whole story. You are going to look to God and say, I know what's best for me. I know what human flourishing is, and he's been here before the beginning. Before the beginning, he'll be here in eternity forever. He's never going to not exist. He never hasn't existed. He's always existed. You were a little th- thought in his mind, and he gave birth to you. He spoke you into existence. All of creation, and now the created thing is going to have the audacity to look up at God and say, nah, "I think I know what's best for me. I know what it is to flourish." Verse 20, chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. He spoke the world into existence. He created life from non-life, matter from non-matter. He's been here forever. And He'll be here forever. He created us with a purpose to live for His glory and our joy. He gave us the free will to step outside of that to do what we want to do, right, to sin and rebel. But He's not up there mad and angry and I'm going to punish them. That's just what happens. If you step, You're not going to be. joy. You're not going to have joy. You're going to go from guy to guy to guy to guy trying to find that completion. It's never going to happen. You're going to go from job to job to job to job. You're going to go from book to book to book. That's why they make millions of dollars on self help books. Because you think the next book's going to fix you. It's not. The next girl, the next guy, getting married, getting a house, getting a dog, kicking the cat, none of that's going to solve it. Kicking the cat might help, though. So God's glory and our joy is inextricably connected. We worship the glory of God because it's our joy. I don't know how to, guys, this this thing, I, I honestly don't know how to describe it, but I weep over it. I weep over it for you when I'm praying for you. Because I don't know how to describe what I feel when I read Scripture, when I pray, when I share my faith, when I see God show up. I don't know how to describe it when I hear a new truth about God or I learn something that reveals Himself to me. I don't know how to describe it. But I'm hungry for it and I crave it more than I crave food. And my wife can attest to that because she has to come in and remind me to eat nearly every day when I'm in my study. And I don't, I can't like, There's no book to give you to go learn that. It's the benefit and the privilege of seeing and savoring the glory of God in Jesus Christ. It's my joy. It's my deepest joy. And I've been doing it for whatever, 12 years, and I feel, in some ways, I feel like I feast on it more than I ever have, but I'm still as hungry as I've ever been. Like, I've got more than I've ever got. I know more about him. I experience more about him. But I still crave it more than I've ever craved it. <clears throat> and also, God saves us not to, make, not to make much of us, right? Like that feline theology, oh, God saved me because he thinks I'm so special. God saves us not to make much of us, but so that we can be freed and released To make much of him. Because when we make much of him, it's to our joy. When we make much of him, it's to our joy. It's to his glory and our joy. Listen, Matthew 5. I'm going to go there real quick. Matthew 5, 16. Jesus said this. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. Look at this and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What's the point of good rhythms? What's the point of good works? What's the point? So that they would see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. I don't know how to, listen. If you, if you're a person who you're living two different lives, You live a life when you're around church people and you live a life when you're around your friends or your, the world or whatever, when you're out of here. It's, called, it's really the statement, the, the thing it's called, it's, philosophers call that cognitive dissonance, okay? There's a, you're living one way but believing one way and there's a dissonance there. There's something disrupted there. I'm just going to say this. Your, your soul has shrunk and you don't know who you are. And that's so empty, and that's so unfulfilled, and I I just grieve over that. And I want you to know, like, if you're in here, like, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you have not stepped over that line, if you don't know what, what's going on in your faith, don't act like a Christian when you're in this room, please. Don't. I don't want you to, to get... Good. Oh, Jesus, I don't want you to get good at putting on the face and acting a certain way and separating your soul, really being separated from who you are as a person and so used to putting the face on and being happy and joyous when in reality you're broken and you're longing and you're hungry and you're thirsty. It's damaging. It's damning to your soul. I am not Jesus. You all know that, right? I am not Jesus. I am not perfect. I make mistakes daily and sin daily. But the one thing I think is true, tell me if it's not after the sermon, but is I'm the same freaking person right now as I am when I'm home with my wife, as I am when I'm in the pub, as I am when I'm at the gym, as I am when I'm anywhere. I'm the same guy. And at, at the little gig, at the gig, the band played at the gig down there, and a guy came in, and we started talking. And then I started talking about Jesus, and I just looked. He just looked so awkward. And he was like a kind of a Christian kid, Christian guy, and he's obviously not. He's he's practiced this thing. He's got this separated thing. He looked at me like, "Whoa, I'm not in church. I'm on. am fr- a free. I'm a free agent right now." Like, what do you? What do you? Br-? And it was just so I could see how just awkward it was. Jesus is reserved for the church time. Jesus is reserved for Wednesday or Sunday or, or the corporate guy. Ga- what is this? Jesus in real life. Jesus is our soul's cure. He is the only thing we need and the only thing we desire more than food. He is the thing that gives us rest. He's all I offer. Do you realize that? That's all we offer? We offer Jesus. So, I don't care if we're at Barrel House. If you ask me what, how to fix it, that's what I'm going to give you. That's the answer. Jesus Christ and Him crucified for, our, for God's glory and for our joy. <clears throat> If you get the glory of God, it will impact all your life. You can't manage this, and you can't isolate it to certain sections of your life. The glory of God is all-encompassing. I want you to see that this is the point. Life isn't about you. It's about Him, and that's for your joy. Heaven, let's let's look at this. Heaven, now this is is cool. This is when heaven actually makes sense to people. If you get... When you say, what's the point of Christianity? Oh, heaven. Oh, so this life has no meaning, but I just accept Jesus once and then I go off to some ethereal land where I float around with chubby babies, right? Okay, so heaven's the point. Now listen, this is the point. Heaven is just a continuation of this. Heaven is the glory of God expanded. Heaven is, now I actually get to see it with my eyes and I actually get to experience it with my heart. Heaven is going deeper and deeper and deeper into the glory of God, which is to my joy. You've realized when you get to heaven, you're not going to be God. You're not going to get to heaven and then all of a sudden everything makes sense and all of a sudden I'm complete. No. Because then what are you going to do for the rest of eternity? You're going to be... continually going deeper and deeper and deeper into the perfection, into the glory of God, into your joy. Every day is going to be better than the day before. Look at Ephesians 3, verse 21. To Him be glory in the church. That's why we exist. We exist as a church for the glory of God and for for the joy of us. And in Christ Jesus, look at this, throughout all generations, forever and ever, Amen. It's about the glory of God forever and ever and ever. Amen. It's about the glory of God and our joy forever and ever and ever. Heaven is heaven because God is there. Heaven is not heaven because there's no pain and there's no weeping and the cat I had when I was three years old, I get to see him in heaven. Cats aren't in heaven anyways. If You knew that. just I have no idea, but I'm hoping. Um, <laughs> heaven is heaven because God is there. Heaven is heaven because God is there. And the glory of God Glory, the radiance, the brilliance, God's holiness put on public display. It's like when you step up to the Grand Canyon and you look out and you know, you don't say, oh yeah, I bet some glaciers built this thing and I pushed through there and oh yeah, I could probably see that. No, you step up the Grand Canyon and you say, oh my God. It's for your joy. It's for God's glory and your joy. Eternity is that to the millionth power. Billions of years from now, those of you who are believers will be just scratching the surface of how infinite the joy of God is. Are you hungry for that? (laughs) The <laughs> it's probably mine, more than mine. Yeah. Like. Our, our physical hunger, realize it doesn't terminate with food, right? You're hungry, you eat. An hour and a half later, you're hungry again. That's meant, that desire is meant to point us to God. We have a desire that we can't meet on our own. Only God can fill it. Listen to me. Christianity is not a one-time decision. You cross the line of faith, you get dunked, and you're good to go. It is just like eating food. It's constant. Feasting on the glory of God, which is our joy. Feasting on the glory of God, which is our joy. Feasting on the glory of God, which is our joy. Closer and closer and closer to the Father. Are you hungry for that? And quoting nearly every week, Augustine, who says, our soul, we were made for God, and our souls are restless until they rest in him. We're made to eat, and our souls are hungry until they taste him. David, my soul pants after water. I'm thirsty. I crave you. Which is why? God gave us a meal. Jesus Christ, the night he was betrayed, he broke bread, and he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Eat this, he said, eat my flesh. I will satisfy your soul, reminding us of the desert where, he said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Your, our souls are feasting on God they're feasting on Christ who Hebrew says is the visible representation of the glory of God he was the glory of God made flesh to us we're feasting on that tonight we're drinking that let drink that in if your souls are hungry come there's food for your souls if your souls are thirsty come there's wine for your thirsty souls Father, I thank you. I thank you for satisfying our souls. I thank you that you are most glorified when we are most satisfied in you. Father, I pray that we come hungry to the table tonight, that we recognize all of our futile um, attempts to soothe our soul, to feed our soul through money, through sex, through power, through control, through our family, through our friends. It's just a way to medicate our souls, Father. But we need to feast on you. You are the only place our soul can rest. So I pray as we come, as believers come to the table tonight, their souls would rest in you. Father, those... If there's anyone in this room that has not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, I pray that they would repent of their sins. As your Spirit shows them that they are sinners, but they are saved by the precious grace of God, I pray they would respond in faith, put their faith in you. You would save them for your glory and for our joy. Father, remind us it's not about us. It's about you. Thank you for your work. In Jesus' name. Amen.